Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone. I'm back after presenting at the Intelligent Speech Conference. I really enjoyed it with lots of great fellow podcasters giving fascinating talks. My topic, Disaster at the Dam, the Great Sheffield Flood of 1861, was incredibly interesting to research, and people seem to enjoy it. If you can make future intelligent speech events, I'd highly recommend it. Also, before we get going, I want to introduce new patron, Lenard, who is a lovable chimney sweep. If you are a patron, don't forget to check the site on Patreon and your emails because a new members special has just been released just for you. There's a trailer at the end of this episode so you can see what you are missing. If you want to be a member but aren't already, just click the link in the show notes or sign up on patreon.com. We have tiers for every budget. With that done, it's time to get on with our podcast adventures. We've been talking about the start of the 1840s, the domestic life of Queen Victoria, Prince Albert, Sir Robert Peel, and the domestic political settlement in his early government. Constitutionally, the monarch was becoming secure and growing into the new modernised role. The Ottoman crisis rolled on and there were a lot of huge events in 1840. One of the most long-lasting was Sir Robert Peel's kindly reintroduction of income tax to reduce import-export tariffs. Thanks so much for that, Sir Robert. The question for us is where to go next. There was so much on. I've talked about railways, Australia, South Africa, and so much more. There's so much I'd love to talk about. Choosing the next big series has been really hard. I feel like I'm long overdue visiting Canada, for instance. Then I sipped a single malt and remembered a long, fascinating idea for a series and dug out my notes. It is time to go east, to India. This is going to be a long series, including exploration, cooking, fashion, sex, guns, wars, sports, and all kinds of amazing and often tragic events. I'll make sure you get some mini-sodes too, to give you some non-Indian variety. The Victorian Empire acted as an engine, a mechanism, that caused peoples, laws, cultures and technologies to be moved on a global scale in a way unparalleled in human history. That set it apart from a lot of previous empires. At its height, the British Empire claimed one quarter of the planet. In the show on Van Diemen's Land, or Tasmania as we called it today, we saw on a small scale just what an enormous impact it could have on an area. But when we talk about the British Empire, inevitably it is India that comes to mind. For a while, Britain and India were so entwined that there was almost the distant possibility of a merger. Racism, greed, classism and distance would prevent it. But the impact the two had on each other was immense. A quick note on terms before we get going. When I say India, I should be clear 
that I'm really talking about the landmass of the Indian subcontinent, unless I'm talking about post-1947. Likewise, when the term Indian is used, it is again a shorthand reference to a person native to the Indian subcontinent, not a national of India, unless I'm talking about post-1947. The term Raj is commonly heard, is usually not used correctly. It refers strictly to the direct rule of India by the British Crown from 1858 to 1947. It should not be used anything before 1858. Names in India have changed a lot. Cities have been named and renamed. Local terms were co-opted and corrupted by the Portuguese, then often mangled further by the Dutch, then the French, and then the British. Sometimes the British couldn't grasp the strange word, so substituted something new again. Remember that languages drift, change, and evolve over time. Not all changes are due to colonial oppression, and older doesn't necessarily mean purer or more correct. For example, New York City is no less worthy of use than New Amsterdam or the original Native American word for the area of New York City, Lenapehoking, and I apologise for the mispronunciation. Just don't airbrush the nasty bits of how the changes happened out of the way. This means there will be a bit of inconsistency and perhaps ambiguity when I talk about places and names. Pakistan didn't exist in the Victorian period, for instance, and the areas in it might have recognisable names, but actually refer to different geographical areas than the modern textbook might list. This hasn't been a huge problem when I've talked about the UK so far. It is a small place, and you don't need to know the historical boundaries of, say, Hampshire have changed a bit, so I've just stuck to Hampshire. But in Victorian Imperial India, there was a city called Bombay. You will have heard of it, even if only from Bombay Potatoes or Bombay Mix, neither of which were indigenous Indian food, at least until potatoes made their way from the Americas via the Portuguese. They might have been seized on by Indian cooks, or maybe a dish that was created by the British using potatoes, making it an Anglo-Indian dish. Despite all that, today Bombay is called Mumbai, spelt M-U-M-B-A-I. It was probably known originally as either Kakamuchi or Galajankaj. The Portuguese called it Bombaim, as a reference to the gentle sea. Another Portuguese navigator called it Mayambu. Various Portuguese names of Mombain, Bombay, Bombain, Bombam, Mombaim, 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 Bambay, Bombayim, Bombayai, Boon Bay, and Bon Bahia were all used. The Portuguese were sold the city by a local Jugujitarati warlord who was at the time in rebellion against the ruling Mughal Empire. The British 
took the city in the 17th century and decides to go with the simple Bombay. A Mughong Islamic imperial official referred to the city as Manbai. The city, named Bombay, remained Bombay for centuries. Then, in 1995, the modern right-wing Hindu nationalist government changed it to Mumbai, stating that Bombay was a name imposed by English colonialists, and the name change was a statement of Marathi identity. On the face of it, that sounds logical, except a lot of people living in the city today and in the 90s were not Indian nationalists and bitterly resented being told they were no longer Bombayites as they had grown up with for generations and centuries and were now Mumbaykars. Passions ran high, with many residents pointing out that Marathi speakers in the city had always called it Mumbai in their own language, so why shouldn't the other residents keep the name that was internationally famous and gave rise to Bollywood? They didn't particularly like the Hindu nationalist government-imposed change. Especially concerning to some has been the perceived erasure of parts of India's shared diverse history in favour of a Hindu nationalist rhetoric. Famous historical locations like the historic Maghong Saraj Junction Railway Station, were renamed in 2018 by the Bajitja Janata Party, apparently as part of the process to remove references to the Muslim Maghong Empire and the non-Hindu aspects of Indian history. And yes, I am sincerely sorry that drastic mispronunciations are going to be a feature of this podcast, I am doing my best and any mispronunciation and offence is purely unintentional. Names can be very political indeed. And I really don't want you to assume the British just came in, renamed everything because they were arrogant and now the damage is being repaired by impartial modern governments. The reality is, as always, far more complicated. There's a quote from an Al Jazeera article that sums it up nicely. Quote, Renaming of a place appears a lot more acceptable to the local population when it is done to erase remaining symbols of colonialism. However, when it is done solely to privilege one of the many available readings of a place's history and identity, it becomes a divisive force, helping to accentuate political, social, and historic divisions within a community, end quote. It goes on to talk about the view some modern Hindu nationalists have towards a more diverse study of Indian history. Quote, the supporters of the renaming of the Rangasbad Road in New Delhi argued that the Mughal Empire was an invader and a cruel ruler who does not deserve to be commemorated in modern India. The real reasoning behind their opposition to the road's name, however, went a lot deeper than the emperor's conduct. The RSS and the BJP perceived not only Aurangzeb's rule, but the entirety of the medieval Muslim era as a dark phase in the country's history. In 2014, Prime Minister Narendra Modi said India 
is troubled by 1,200 years of slave mentality. He was clearly lumping together the 200 years of British colonial rule and the preceding medieval Muslim era as a long and undivided period of colonial suffering. In other words, even though the Mughal Empire had been part of India for centuries, it wasn't properly Indian. An article in the Indian First Post newspaper expands on this. Quote, Scholars are divided on their assessment of this new usage in the context of Indian history. Makan Lao, historian and former ICHR council member, says the Prime Minister has stated historical facts. He was not asserting to political correctness whether Gahoris, Gavazni, or the rulers of the Sultanate or the Mughal period, they were all foreigners originally. They didn't belong to the culture of the land then. They came from outside, waged wars against the local rulers, took them captive, and, in many cases, plundered the resources and ruled the land by enslaving the locals. End quote. Unsurprisingly, a lot of other historians blew their collective gaskets over this, with one calling it a complete falsification of history. It certainly ignored the possibility of indigenous populations from multiple religious groups. Modi is sometimes accused of being a human rights abuser, fascist and Islamophobe, who is part of a movement to create a Hindu cultural dominance linked to extreme right-wing Hindu nationalism. Attacks on Muslim minorities seem to have been encouraged by nationalists, and this has in turn inflamed tensions with Pakistan. Of course, members of Modi supporters would counter this with the argument that Modi is simply speaking uncomfortable but obvious historical truths, and that Hinduism remains the mainstream religion and cultural strand of India. But if you are a modern Muslim in Hindu-dominated India, how do you think you might feel about that? This kind of issue can be absolutely incendiary. So you can see names can be incredibly controversial and arouse strong feelings. I'm not an expert in Indian nationalism or modern Indian politics. If you want a detailed understanding of the subject, please consult real experts as it is outside the scope of our podcast. Just remember, the Indian subcontinent was not a unified nation in the way we understand it at any point in its history until 1947. The plain reason for this is that the nation-state is a very, very recent creation, and just as nation-states were coming into existence in Europe in the late 18th and 19th centuries, the British, French and other Europeans were slowly making inroads into the Indian subcontinent in a way that would have prevented the formation of a unified Indian nation, even if one was able to be brought together in a coherent manner. I should strongly caution you, though, that the evidence that the Indian subcontinent would form a unified nation if the Europeans hadn't arrived is very thin. Indian nationalist politicians and historians 
sometimes present Indian unification as both inevitable and only stopped by the British, but this is a seriously dubious counterfactual and has to ignore the problems the Mughal Empire was having in suppressing revolt, or assuming that the revolt would all then have given way to dozens of different rebel states deciding to randomly come together to create an entirely new nation. In a way, it is like saying, if the Europeans had never arrived in North America, the native peoples would inevitably have created a unified American nation. Before you draw that conclusion, you need really, really strong evidence of the trends. I'm going to give you a quick introduction to the Indian subcontinent in general, some of its history, the people who lived there, the Honourable East India Company, the French and British Wars, and how events in India affected the neighbouring areas. We're not going to get through this introduction in one episode. This will mean a mix of geography, history, ancient history, the Victorians, technology, farming, and much more. The point of all this is so that you can understand one of the most amazing regions on Earth and how it affected the Victorians, then how they affected it. Doing a history of the Victorian era without doing a lot about India would be crazy. Britain shaped the subcontinent, changing the people, the geography and the customs. But the influence ran the other way too. The British were dazzled by much of the wealth and perceived exoticness. Men went to fight, to loot, to build businesses, to find fortunes. Women followed for lots of reasons. From the excitement, to the opportunities, to career building, to what was called the fishing fleet of eligible young ladies, certain that there were better prospects for marriage in India. Indian food was adopted and adapted. Queen Victoria loved curry and was deeply interested in India. English and Scottish country houses had Indian rooms. Tea and opium brought wealth and shame. Some of the finest military forces ever fielded in history emerged from the blending of British and Indian soldiers. Also, when I say British, I mean English, Irish, Welsh and Scottish. The empire was not an English construct that was forced on others. The empire was a British empire and it needs to be viewed as such. Much as some people prefer to chalk up any problems to the English and leave it at that. Almost no one in the UK was untouched by the empire in some way. From the working class, who turned Indian cotton into clothes in hellish factories, to the railways that hauled the freight, to the working class soldier, gone from the orchards of Kent to the frontier of Afghanistan, to the middle class Scottish boys, sent out to administer forests, irrigation programmes, and tax collections, all the way up to the loftiest English gentleman playing polo, drinking gin, shooting tigers, and occasionally condescending to soldier, when it didn't get in the way of the cricket. Britain changed India, and India changed Britain. The consequences reverberate even today. Turning to geography and climate then, according to the World Atlas, the Indian subcontinent is 
a peninsula located in South Central Asia that is surrounded by the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea. The area is primarily centred on the Indian Plate, a tectonic plate located along the equator in the Eastern Hemisphere. There is no widely accepted definition of the exact parameters of the Indian subcontinent, although many researchers agree that it encompasses India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bhutan and the Maldives. Recently, the area has increasingly been referred to as South Asia. The Indian subcontinent encompasses several distinct geographical features. Along the northern border are the Himalayan mountains, which create a natural border between India, Pakistan and Nepal. The western region of the Indian subcontinent consists of the Hindu Kush mountain range, separating Pakistan from Afghanistan. This mountain range is the dividing line between the Indus River Valley and the Amudraya River. The Arakan Mountains are located along the eastern border. The middle of the subcontinent is full of lakes, plains, rivers, forests and deserts. The previously mentioned mountain ranges help isolate the Indian subcontinent from the rest of Asia, giving it a distinct cultural and political identity, end quote. That barely scratches the surface. Borders in this region have historically been hazy and flexible at best. According to the Thought Co. website, quote, the geography of India is diverse and can be divided into three main regions. The first is the rugged, mountainous Himalayan region in the northern part of the country, while the second is called the Indo-Gangetic Plain. It is in this region that most of India's large-scale agriculture takes place. The third geographic region in India is the Plateau region in the southern and central portions of the country. India also has three major river systems, all of which have large deltas that take over a large portion of the land. These are the Indus, Ganges and the Brahmaputra rivers. Is this giving you nightmares of your old geography classes? Well, let's break it down a bit. Picture a triangle resting upside down on one of its points, with sharp sides and a broad base in the air. You are looking down on the triangle. It is a lovely greeny-brown colour. It is surrounded at the bottom, where it is resting on its point, by a beautiful blue sea. The Arabian Sea on the left side, and the Bay of Bengal on the right. The top right corner of the subcontinent looks like someone has taken a bite out of it, like someone biting an apple. That bite is mostly the Himalayas, Nepal, Bhutan, and a part of China. That's where the really, really big mountains are. On the left-hand side is what is now the separate nation of Pakistan, and just above it is Afghanistan. Then the Hindu Kush mountain range, a place of mystery and grandeur. These great peaks would become the unofficial dividing line between the British and Russian empires in the Victorian era. They are the source of some of the greatest rivers in the world. As they turn into Afghanistan, they connect with the Spine Gar Mountains, 
that contain the Khyber Pass. Running alongside is the famous River Indus on its long journey from Tibet to the sea. Later joined by the River Sutlej of the Anglo-Sikh war fame, the two rivers run across to the left edge of our triangle, still near the top, and join into the Indus Basin, joined by many other rivers. This region is in Pakistan today, but the River Indus is crucial to this region and creates the fertile valley and plains known as the Punjab. That comes from the Persian words Pun, meaning five, and Jab, meaning waters. The exact political boundaries of the Punjab have fluctuated over history, but it's always been a rich and fertile region. The Indus flows into the sea of what is now the capital of Karachi in Pakistan. This was only founded in 1729 as a fishing port, but the Honourable East India Company captured it. Then it was made the capital of the newly annexed Sindh territory in the 1840s, which transformed it into a city with railways and a provincial capital. You can see how much history is packed into a small part of India, and we've not even finished our lay of the land yet. Moving down the left-hand side by the Arabian Sea are the various coastal plains, stretches called the Makan, including Mumbai, then the Kanara stretch, halfway down with Goa in it, and finally the Malabar section, where some of my favourite coffees come from. Just inland from them are the Western Ghats. This is yet another mountain range, but smaller than the mighty peaks to the far north. This range can be split into various climate sections and runs for thousands and thousands of kilometres. They influence the weather patterns for the continent by catching and absorbing the worst of the monsoon rains from the west. They then act as a water tank for some of the river systems feeding the Deccan Plains in the centre of our southern half of the triangle. Western Ghats are an ecological hotspot, by the way. The views are spectacular. The flora and fauna are incredibly diverse and some of the waterfalls are breathtaking. Seriously, this area is an ecologist's dream and deserves serious protection. Unfortunately, the British introduced eucalyptus and pine trees to some areas which were highly damaging. Forest clearance has been an ongoing problem and precious habitats are at ongoing risk. Now we can round the point of the triangle where we are at the southernmost point of India, at the city of Kayak Umnari. This is where the Arabian Ocean, the Indian Ocean and the Bay of Bengal all meet. It has had human habitation for thousands of years and was known to Ptolemy and Marco Polo. It was conquered by the Portuguese, then the Dutch and finally by the British who called it Cape Comorin. Our stately progress can now turn up the eastern side of our triangle but ignoring Sri Lanka just off to our right as we turn round the Cape. We are on the Coromandel coast, a vast stretch, 22,800 square kilometres. It is sheltered from the monsoons by the Western Ghats and has its own low top range of mountains called the Eastern Ghats. 
It is a dry, arid region, but fed by lots of rivers, meaning it has some incredibly fertile areas, including coconut trees, more delicious coffees, sugarcane, rice, bananas, nuts, and cotton. Other parts away from the rivers can experience droughts and famines. It has a long history of trade with China and Thailand. The British loved the Coromandel coast so much, they named some Royal Naval warships and a part of New Zealand after it. The biggest city was Madras, also called Chennai. It is bakingly hot there, with averages in the mid-90s Fahrenheit or high 30s degrees centigrade and doesn't always get enough water, so relies heavily on the monsoon. The Indian subcontinent is as ancient as it is vast. It was a cradle of civilization. It has a long and immensely interesting history. It has been settled by humans since at least a 100,000 years ago. There is a famous set of caves, the Bahimbetka rock shelters. They were first recorded for scientific purposes by Victorian official William Kincaid, but he relied on local oral tradition that the caves were Buddhist sites. In the 1950s, Indian archaeologist Vishnu Sridhar Wakanka correctly identified them based on his experience with cave art he'd studied in Europe. The caves contain magnificent cave art from 10,000 BC onwards. Human settlement developed into a complex civilization in the Indus Valley and was one of the oldest civilizations on Earth after the Mesopotamian and ancient Egyptians, predating the Chinese. For comparison, the inhabitants of Britain at the time were transitioning from hunter-gathering to farming. India was the birthplace of Buddhism, as well as Hinduism and later Sikhism. But India wasn't easy to understand for Europeans. For most of European history, India was known either in connection to Alexander the Great or through tales told by merchants and middlemen who acted as intermediaries. It attracted more speculation than real knowledge. It was also a target for sailors and explorers. The ancient nature of civilization in the area was a magnet for historians, scholars and linguists. For the Victorians, the notion of India and Indian civilization was a puzzle. How did such an incredible civilization arise so early? Why hadn't it lasted to the modern age? What did it tell them about civilizations and empires? Were they all doomed to rise and fall? On top of that, the huge dollop of Anglo-centric and white-centric racism couldn't believe or credit the enormous achievements of complex civilization to non-white people. For the British, India was a different world, one that many fell in love with, became obsessed with, dived into and became part of. For them, perhaps a Kipling quote captures the joy and thrill of the place, so different from the cold, grey, narrow-minded Britain. Quote, the diamond-bright dawn woke men and crows and bollocks together. Kim sat up and yawned, shook himself and thrilled with delight. This was seeing the world in real truth. 
This was life as he would have it, bustling and shouting, the buckling of belts and the beating of bullocks, and the cracking of wheels, lighting of fires and cooking of food, and new sights at every turn of the approving eye. The morning mist swept off a wall of silver, and parrots shot away to some distant river in shrieking green hosts. All the well wheels within earshot went to work. India was awake, and Kim was in the middle of it, more awake and more excited than anyone, chewing on a twig that he would presently use as a toothbrush, end quote. For others, India was a place of godless debauchery, a primitive, savage land full of willfully ignorant people who refused to dress modestly, be sexually abstinent, and convert to the one true Christian God. These extreme believers frequently despised the native peoples, but also any Britons who failed to share their religious mania. Many worked independently, but a worrying number ended up in positions of power and authority, including senior military ones. Some went even further and adopted an almost medieval crusader attitude, believing that an almost Old Testament wrath of God needed to be brought down on the enemies of Christ and the British. There were also the vast ranks of the indifferent, especially in the junior positions and the ranks of the army. For them, India was not a land of delight and history to explore, or a new Christian holy land to create with a flaming sword. It was a job and they perhaps hadn't taken said job with any great enthusiasm, or they were dragged out there by husbands or brothers, perhaps banished there for getting involved with a beautiful but penniless girl in England, or fleeing starvation in Ireland, or poverty in the Scottish Highlands. Lastly, there were the hard-headed fortune seekers, whether in trade, exploitation, marriage or career advancement, India offered the chance for a penniless boy from the gutters of Whitechapel to make good, a house with servants, food on the table and a wife and kids, perhaps from junior clerk to massively wealthy commander of a trading fleet, or even, as Clive of India had shown, the chance to be a new Caesar, wealth, power and armies to command. Then a seat in the House of Lords, your family's fortune secured for generations. The connections between Britain, India and money were at the heart of it all. So it is really there we will look next in our journey, starting in January with that infamous institution, the Honourable East India Trading Company. You've all heard of it, but believe me, it was every bit as powerful and brutal as you can imagine. Our next episode, though, will be Christmas. That's right, it's that time of year again. I'm very excited for the Christmas special, and I hope you can all join me soon. Now, have a listen to a quick trailer for the latest patron special. Enjoy. The world is a huge place. How will you know where you fit in unless you explore beyond your comfort zone? What could better sum up the Victorian era? Of course, this quote is from Ernest Shackleton, born in the Victorian era 
but famous in the Edwardian era as the great polar explorer. As I sit here and drink a bottle of White and Mackey's reissued Shackleton blend whiskey after watching BBC's Frozen Planet 2, my mind wanders north and south to those great extremes. How can we describe the polar regions? They have been a mystery and a siren call to humans for centuries. For the Victorians, what challenges they presented. I've always wanted to do a real series for you, my dear patrons. Episodes with the depth of the main show and with their own theme. Something you can really enjoy and dig your teeth into. It is time for us to take some journeys into the unknown, to see some of the greatest moments of Victorian exploration and the great tragedies along the way, from the brutal cold of the poles to the high mountain passes at the top of the world to the steaming jungles. I have a huge amount to cover and I'm very excited after nearly a year's research. I hope you will be too. Now, normally, as Mary Poppins would say, or was it someone from The Sound of Music? Normally the best place to begin is at the beginning. With the poles, that's a little difficult. I could give you detailed geography lessons, but this series is supposed to be about the exploration and pushing boundaries. Let's begin instead with the first real Victorian polar expedition under Ross. Once we have covered his great expedition south, we will turn north to one of the most infamous disasters in polar exploration history, perhaps second only in fame to Scott's loss. Who is Ross, you might ask? If the name sounds vaguely familiar, it is because you might have heard of the Ross Ice Shelf in the news on climate change. It is one of the great iconic sites of the Antarctic. According to the Smithsonian Museum, quote, Antarctica is almost entirely covered up by ice sheets, up to two miles, three kilometers thick, which contain roughly 70% of the world's fresh water. The great ice sheets spill out to sea as floating ice shelves and ice tongues which routinely carve massive icebergs into the waters around Antarctica. The Ross Ice Sea Shelf is one of the largest ice shelves in the world. It is the size of France, and though the 200-foot-tall cliffs of ice extend 500 miles, that is just, as they say, the tip of the iceberg. Most of the ice lies hidden below the cold, dark salt water, end quote. But how did a vast sheet of ice that often lay in remote darkness at the bottom of the world get discovered and named? The answer was due to the epic voyage of Victorian exploration. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at Podcast at gmail.com follow me on twitter at age of victoria visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com the show also has a facebook page and a group 
just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.